Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's this thing that millions of people are doing and yet no one discusses it in public. And just anecdotally, when I run into groups of people, if I mention the game, usually like half the people in the room have been playing the game. And yet they're like the other half of the country has no idea this is even a thing. By listening to this episode, you're going to lose the game. You're going to lose it a lot. My first strong memory of playing the game was going to my brother's wedding and then trying to get my brother to associate the phrase I do with I just lost the game so that you would have to lose it at the altar and then admit to as much. That's Forrest Wickman, the culture editor of Slate. He's been playing the game since the mid-2000s. He did not lose the game at the altar. Uh, people maybe relieved to know, though immediately after the wedding, he came up to me like a little teary-eyed and then lost the game. Okay. If you keep listening to this episode, there is no going back because you can't unlearn the game. And once you learn it, you can never stop playing it. So turn off this episode right now if you don't want to know what it is. We're going to give you five seconds. Okay, here it is. You lose the game by thinking about the game. When you think about the game, you have to say, I just lost the game. And that's it. That's the game. And I just lost the game. This is Decoder Ring. I'm Willa Paskin. For a handful of you, this episode may sound familiar. Back in 2018, we made another episode called The Incanabula Papers, and in it we hit a bunch of honestly pretty difficult clues that led to a special bonus episode. This episode, an episode only a few hundred people have heard until now. Basically, we're opening up the decodering vault and letting this episode out with just a few updates. And this episode is about the mind game known as The Game. It's silly and harmless, but also infectious and unforgettable. If you already know of it, there's a good chance you learned about it around the year 2010 or earlier this year on TikTok. But it goes back further than that. It's an analog viral phenomenon with roots in psychology, game shows, and a British science fiction club. So today on Decoder Ring, where did the game come from?
Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so I learned about the game making this episode about the game. But Benjamin Frisch, Dakota Ring's producer, has been playing the game since the late aughts, and he reported this story out. I learned about the game when I was in college, riding in the back of a cramped, rickety van during a European road trip. Road trips are maybe the best or the worst way to learn about the game. When you're playing it in a car with the same people for a long time, with nothing else to do or think about, the game is going to come up a lot. We lost the game dozens of times on that trip. And in retrospect, it made that trip really memorable to me and helped bond me to people I didn't know so well. And in talking with other people, it's clear that I'm not alone. Dan Check is Slate's CEO. It is the first thing out of your mouth, I think, when you see me, typically, which is pretty great. For whatever reason, I associate you with the game, but the opposite doesn't really happen. So I lose the game first, and I say, I just lost the game. And we both kind of titter a little bit. It becomes becomes a greeting ritual at that point. The idea that the harder you try not to think of a thing, the harder it is not to think of that thing, isn't new. There's a Dostoevsky quote from 1863. Try to pose for yourself this task, not to think of a polar bear, and you will see that cursed thing will come to mind every minute. In 1987, the social psychologist Daniel Wegner came across that quote and decided to do an experiment with it. He told participants to sit for five minutes and not think of a white bear. And every time they did think of a white bear, to ring a bell. They rang the bell a lot. The game relies on exactly this human habit and turns it into, well, a game. When one person loses the game and announces that they have lost the game, everyone else in the vicinity must also necessarily lose the game, having been reminded of its existence. Unlike most games, you can never win the game. There are only two states of play. Either you have forgotten about the game, temporarily, or you have lost it. Now, some people include another rule, that when someone declares that they have thought about the game, it creates a temporary immunity period in which other people may think about the game without losing it, allowing someone to win the game, in a sense. This is not a universal rule, though, and it remains controversial. And that's in part because the game, being this weird, amorphous, difficult-to-pin-down thing, makes figuring out what the rules are pretty difficult. 
But if there is an established authority on the game, it's probably John T. Haywood, who created the website LoseTheGame.net in 2005. And I was kind of just playing it as most people do, like occasionally thinking about it and losing it. Um, Really, I wanted to just kind of develop my web design skills and didn't have any idea what to make a website about. But I was searching up the game online and couldn't really find much about it, so I thought I'd make my website about the game. John T. Haywood is from Cornwall in the UK, and he seems like the kind of gentle prankster who'd be really into the game. Famously, in Cornwall at least, he started a website in 2007 for Cornwall's most beautiful beach, Porthemet Beach, a huge, almost tropical strip in North Cornwall filled with beautiful wildlife and topless sunbathing. A beach that doesn't exist. Jaunty's website about the game became a nexus for information, and in a real way, an authority on the rules, records, and notable events regarding the game. Jaunty's rules are as follows. One, you are playing the game. You, along with everyone else in the world, always is, always has been, and always will be playing the game. Neither awareness nor consent is required to play. Two, Every time you think about the game, you lose. Loss is temporary. As soon as you forget about the game, you stop losing. The objective of the game is to forget that it exists. Good luck. Three, loss of the game must be announced. Every time you think about the game and hence lose, you must say so. This is the only rule that can be broken. But do you really need to cheat? Jaunty notes that the idea of grace periods are a common addition, but they are not included in his classic rule set. Jaunty is also a notable figure in the lore of the game, not just for collecting resources on it, but for single-handedly spreading the game to thousands and thousands of people. According to Jaunty, his Facebook group devoted to celebrating and spreading the game was hugely popular. Before Facebook changed their like group system, they basically deleted all the groups at one point. There were like 200,000 members in the Facebook group. A hit counter on his website currently stands at over 4.8 million, in his words, infected. The heyday of the game, on the internet at least, was in the late aughts and early 2010s. This was a time when the concept of virality was coming into everyday use, and the game was a perfect, if extremely analog, example of how an idea can spread in the digital age. A rash of notable pranks having to do with the game happened around this time. In 2009, the site 4chan rigged Time Magazine's online poll of the 100 most influential people, so the first letter of each name on the list spelled out a lewd form in-joke, followed by the words... Also, the game. In the same year, Christopher Heatley, a man from Belfast in Northern Ireland, won a prize from Cadbury, the chocolate company, and got to put a message of his choice on two roadside billboards in Belfast. His choice was, you just lost the game. Since then, references to the game have showed up all over the place, but especially on social media, and most recently on TikTok, where thousands of people have been losing the game since lockdown. You just lost the game. You just lost the game. Hey, everyone, guess what? 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 I just lost the game. I lost the game! (laughs) Once you know it exists, you start to notice the game all over the English-speaking world. It's pretty much endemic at this point. 
So now we turn to the big question. How did this happen? If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. No one knows for sure exactly where the game came from, but I think it's pretty likely that it evolved from a mind game, a totally different mind game, played by British students in the late 1970s. This was in the days when there really wasn't any kind of proper geek culture. Uh, That's Nick Lowe, a classic scholar at Royal Holloway College in London, who was a PhD student at Cambridge at the time. There was a science fiction society in Cambridge, a student uh, science fiction society, uh, which met in a pub once a week. So, you know, it was the age of punk. There was this kind of punkish sort of attitude to the ways in which we were uh, thinking about maths as a tool for kind of exploding people's heads and, uh, if possible, the foundations of reality with it. In this science fiction club, one of the games people were playing was called Finchley Central, which dates back to at least 1969, when its rules were detailed by the mathematicians David Fowler and Anatole Beck in an issue of Manifold magazine. According to that article, the rules are as follows. Two players alternate naming the stations of the London Underground. First to say Finchley Central wins. It's clear that the best time to say Finchley Central is exactly before your opponent does. You could, of course, say Finchley Central on your second turn. In that case, your opponent puffs on his cigarette and says, well, shame on you. In other words, you can win at any time. You just have to say Finchley Central. But if you say Finchley Central right away, that's bad form, bad sportsmanship. After all, it ends the game just as it begins. You can see how it's related to the game, but with a key difference. You can actively win Finchley Central. There's also a game very similar to Finchley Central that premiered later, in 1989, on the BBC comedy panel show I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. The rules are exactly the same, but the winning phrase is another London tube station, Mornington Crescent. Now we're going to play the game called Mornington Crescent. Fulham Palace Road. Marylebone Station. Seven Sisters Road. Oh. <laughs> oh, hoist with his own petard. It's ours in three. Pal Mal. Charlotte Street. Mornington Crescent. Thank you. So obviously, you know, any player can win uh, at any point in the game. And this was uh, a kind of game that mathemat- the mathematical model of game theory uh, 
couldn't do anything with. Nick and a group of his science fiction society friends would play Finchley Central together. And at some point, the game evolved. One of us uh, came up with the suggestion that you could have a variant in which you win not by saying Fintry Central first, but simply by thinking of it first. And then it was a very small step from there to uh, an even more interesting variant where uh, instead of winning by thinking of Finchley Central first, you lost by thinking of it. Uh, So you lose the game the moment you think of the winning move in the game, uh, which is the only move you can sensibly make. The society loved this version of Finchley Central and started passing it down within the society from year to year. Nick Hobson recalls that there was one man, Mark Haslett, who wasn't there for its inception, but who was really into it. Mark in particular, I think, was the kind of typhoid Mary of this particular mimetic virus. Uh, He kind of spread it to everyone he met. Nick says that you were the person who was like telling everybody about it. Well, that's Nick for you. That's Mark Haslett, Nick's former roommate. He's retired now, and for what it's worth, doesn't remember his enthusiasm for this version of Finchley Central being quite as extreme as Nick remembers it being, but he was nonetheless a major part of its origin. You know, your head's just caught up by it. I mean, there's some people who got so so into it as a meta game that you kind of almost felt like when you weren't thinking about Finchley Central, that was a meta loss. <laughs> You spent, you know, your part of your head was just permanently thinking about Finchley Central. Oh, Lord, if we'd stumbled across a, a game that was spectacular, as addictive as Finchley Central is. Damn good thing we didn't find one that was dangerous. Eventually, Nick and Mark and all of their friends left Cambridge and sort of forgot about Finchley Central. I never knew about the game until about 10 years ago. It started appearing in... Uh, the British press. And it was the first time that I knew that it had gone out in the world. All my students turned out to know about it. And I I was kind of one of the last to know. And I got in contact with uh, with Mark and with other people uh, uh, who had been part of that original. And we were all completely baffled. We, none of us knew that the game had become this thing. This is kind of um, a, a sobering life lesson, really, that uh, all the uh, uh, high-minded attempts to be uh, a scholar and a teacher that uh, are, have uh, driven many of our careers since, um, uh, they pale into insignificance by, uh, beside having a kind of collaborative hand into creating one of the stupidest ideas in human history. Mark Haslett told me that every decade or so, some journalist comes poking around asking about it. And in the intervening time, he hasn't thought too much about Finchley Central. He doesn't see his old college buddies that often, after all. Well, presumably there was a long, maybe decade-long period where you didn't, where you were winning the game. No, no, there is no such thing as winning Finchley Central. That's the point. It only has one rule, and that's how you lose. I mean, the, the idea of the immunity period is basically so that you can enjoy having won the game. But that... You can't win the game. That's the point. Oh, dear. No, no, you're clearly missing the point here. <laughs> I am realizing that um, this this rule like feels very American to me because we have to win everything. Yeah, well, exactly. And I'm very British, and I think it's funny that you have a game where it's impossible to win because the only rule is how you lose. 
There's still a hole in the story. I couldn't find anyone who could explain to me exactly how Finchley Central turned into the version of the game that we know today. We're thinking about the game itself, rather than thinking about a London tube station makes you lose. If I had to guess, I suspect it probably has something to do with Finchley Central spreading beyond the greater London area. No doubt part of the fun of Finchley Central was losing Finchley Central every time you saw the name on a map or a signpost. But when you don't live anywhere close to Finchley Central, why should you think of it at all? When players moved away from London, they probably just dissolved the tube station entirely, and the game became fully self-referential. The game is such a simple, basic idea. It almost seems like something that has always existed. Like it wasn't something that was invented. It was just discovered. And I think that's because it corresponds to something very basic about human psychology. Which brings me back to that Dostoevsky quote from earlier about the polar bear. In psychology, the phenomenon of not being able to think about something you don't want to think about is called ironic process theory. The way that the mind when it tries not to think of something, seems incapable of letting it go. Ironic process theory is this idea that when we engage in thought suppression, there's this ironic rebound effect, which... Nick Hobson uh, is a lecturer in psychology at the University of Toronto. We have two systems in our, in our mind or brain. So we have our one system, which tells us, you know, consciously and deliberately, don't think about this thing, don't have this thought or this idea. So when we tell ourselves not to have a particular thought or an idea, that sets off this unconscious monitoring process. And it sort of checks in every so often to make sure that we're not thinking about X. But as a result of monitoring for X, well, then X comes to mind. And that's, that is the irony, <laughs> which is, it's sort of like a flaw in the design of our, of our psychology, um, you know, through evolution. And, and this is, this is the outcome of it. We all experience some amount of ironic processing in everyday life. Like when you get a really annoying song stuck in your head, but ironic process theory isn't just about frivolous things. I would make the argument that as we see it manifested in everyday psychology, that it does sort of tend to be more negative when you start to think about um, people with anxiety and, and, and mood disorders and PTSD. In a mental health context, ironic processing is a way that painful memories can reassert themselves. It's a way that depression and anxiety disorders manifest. And it's a way negative thoughts burrow deeper and deeper into the mind. What I love about the game is that it trades on this odd, potentially dark thing inside of us, this flaw in human cognition, and turns it into a completely harmless prank. It diffuses it. It turns it into a kind of bonding agent. And that's not silly or frivolous at all. It's actually kind of beautiful. We all went, kind of went our separate ways, and some of us remained more in touch than others. Uh, so it became a, the, the game became a sort of little rebonding thing every time we uh, we uh, get back in touch. And uh, so it's it's part of your relationship. It was part of this kind of shared uh, madness.
This is Dakota Ring. I'm Willa Paskin. I'm Benjamin Frisch. Thanks for listening. This episode was written by Benjamin Frisch and produced by Benjamin Frisch and Willa Paskin. Cleo Levin is our research assistant. Special thanks to Forrest Wickman for suggesting this topic and to June Thomas, Haley Gavin, Danielle Hewitt, and everyone else who gave us help and feedback along the way. See you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.